Hello and welcome to the very first video podcast on the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing the future of manufacturing in Australia and in particular the future of jobs in regional Australia. They've always been important topics, but they're absolutely vital today in light of the twin crises confronting Australia and the world. First, the COVID-19 crisis, and second, the climate change crisis. So I'm delighted to be joined today by not one, but two Grattan gurus. Firstly, Grattan's Energy Program Director, Tony Wood. Tony, welcome to you. And also Grattan's Energy Fellow, Guy Dundas. G'day, Guy. Hi, Paul. Tony and Guy have just published an important new Grattan report called Start with Steel, a practical plan to support carbon workers and cut emissions. I'll get to steel and I'll get to carbon workers soon. But first, Tony, this plan you've produced is a way of dealing with what you've called Australia's great climate conundrum. What do you mean by that, the climate conundrum? Well, it's been called many things, Paul, climate wars, climate battlefields, and we've called it a climate conundrum because we've for at least the best part of the century, Australia has been grappling with, not uniquely in the world, but pretty unusually, with the challenge of how do we fundamentally address climate change? And we sort of run hot and cold on whether we're actually committed to addressing climate change and being part of the global community. But I think it's true to say, even though there's a difference in emphasis, it's true to say that the major political parties in this country are committed to reducing emissions on climate change. Now, Individuals may or may not, but the parties certainly have taken that position. And yet, we've still not found a way forward in, that brings people with us as we do uh, address climate change. And in particular, we saw at the last election how difficult that can be if you don't provide a compelling narrative for, for all of the Australians to come with politician, political leaders when they embark upon what will be a very significant economic challenge. So, Tony, you say in this report that tackling climate change is in Australia's national interest, but just expand on that idea for me, because some of our viewers and listeners might be thinking, well, there's not much we can do about it, and what's the big deal anyway? Well, from Australia's perspective, it is becoming a big deal. I was involved with Ross Garner in 2008, and we identified then that Australia would be one of the parts of the world that would be most affected by an increase in global temperatures because of the nature of our where we sit on the planet, but also the nature of our economy, particularly things like tourism and agriculture. Now, since that report, more than 10 years ago now, we have seen increasingly, not just the physical, but the economic impact of climate change beginning to accumulate. It's very easy to catastrophize that sort of situation, but it's pretty clear the fingerprints of serious economic damage caused by climate change are starting to, mer to mer emerge, and we need to take that very seriously indeed. And secondly, it's also in our interest because we are a major exporter of fossil fuels. We have benefited enormously in our economy for exporting these things. And now we're faced with a situation where if the world moves on climate change, as most countries in the world have said we will and we must, then we'll be left with a situation where the world may no longer want those serious coal and gas exports. 
So as we think about those two questions, it seems to us that then exemplifies what we've called the climate conundrum and which we've tried to address in this report. Guy, I'm going to, go, I'm going to make you the go-to guest for definitions today. I hope you don't mind that. Sure. Um, we refer to, in this report, you refer to carbon workers. It's in the title of the report. Just tell me exactly what you mean by that term, Guy. So carbon workers are people who work in industries that are inherently create greenhouse gas emissions, particularly around the extraction and, and sale of fossil fuels. So the most obvious ones are really uh, coal mining and oil and gas extraction. We also include fossil fuel power generation and iron and steel and cement production, which produces emissions in the processes that we use today in Australia. We haven't included all energy intensive industries in Australia, of which there are many, because we think Australia has abundant clean energy sources as well as um, fossil fuel energy sources. So there are good prospects for moving towards clean energy sources for those energy intensive industries. We made one exception. We included aluminium smelting because it's unusually electricity intensive and it also produces emissions um, through the destruction of the anodes in the process. So th those key industries are the ones that we've included. Now, there are about 100,000 carbon workers in Australia. That includes people who work, if you like, in the head office in capital cities. And we were particularly interested in, if you'll pardon the pun, um, people who work at the coalface. So we looked at, at regional concentrations of carbon workers, and we found about 55,000 of those. The largest grouping of those is in coal mining, and, and, and they're particularly concentrated in central Queensland and the Hunter. So there are about 23,000 carbon workers in central Queensland and about 16,000 in the Hunter Valley. And in those regions, the majority are coal miners. Thanks, Guy. Tony, you're right that uh, carbon workers deserve honesty from their governments about the future of their industry or industries. What should they be told about the future for coal? Well, in preparing for this report and doing the research, um, Guy and I have visited some of the areas that we've been talking about over more than six months, actually. And what we found was quite intriguing in that whilst many of the people in those regions that Guy's been talking about are earning good jobs in those industries, particularly the coal industry, they are not unrealistic about the future. They don't necessarily accept that um, the world is going to continue to want our coal into the long term. However, they're also very concerned about what that means, and they're looking for solutions. And the solutions are not obvious. And I think we saw some signs of this in the last federal election, when voters in those areas were not very uh, warm to the federal Labor Party policy that did not find a way forward for those workers. So I don't think, and our research indicates, they didn't vote against action on climate change, but they voted against action on losing their jobs. and so. Um, when we've engaged with those communities, they are pragmatic and realistic, but they also don't want to lose their economic prosperity or security. So um, we think that two things have to happen here. Firstly, we have to look at where the opportunities might be, which would provide a way forward, provide some hope, but also don't make it unrealistic. Now, Grattan is not in the habit of simply asking governments to pour money down open um, plug holes. If things are going away, they should go away. But at certain times, that's not the case. And in this situation, we think there's clear 
evidence backed up by analysis that there is a very significant opportunity ahead for Australia to bring together um, renewable energy and our uh, resources, something we've never done before at scale. Not only that, we may also be able to provide the jobs in those areas of Australia we've been talking about and give them that hope. So we think balanced hope, if you like, is what those communities deserve. And to some extent, we think this report offers that. Guys, significant opportunities ahead for Australia's carbon workers. Just, just persuade me about that. That's right, we, we absolutely see that, Paul. So Australia, as everyone knows, is rich in fossil fuels. And I think most people probably accept that we are rich in renewable energy as well. So um, we, we see that, uh, if you like, there's a natural hedge or a natural balance in that situation. So if the world moves slowly on climate change, then, we, then probably our fossil fuel-based industries will continue to be successful and continue to produce for many decades. If the world moves quickly, then we have to pivot quickly to capture those new opportunities. But importantly, those opportunities are not just opportunities for Australia, they're opportunities for carbon workers and those regions that I talked about, if you like, carbon regions where they're particularly concentrated. So we, we've looked at it and, and each of those regions has access to high quality uh, solar or wind resources or both. Um, they have obviously port infrastructure that helps them sell the commodities they sell today. And the workers themselves are a vital part of the story. So if you're going to produce, um, renewable energy-based commodities at global scale, you need a lot of workers. And those regions have those workers. And if, if they're moving away from, say, coal mining, then they'll be able and willing and, and able and available to move into these new opportunities. So, so we don't, don't just think this is an opportunity for Australia. We think it's specifically an opportunity for carbon regions like central Queensland and Hunter. Okay, so we've got lots of renewable energy resources, as you say, but how can we or how should we export them, Guy? So there are three main ways, and we're particularly interested in one, which I'll get to in a moment. So, so the two that we're not so interested in that we think have potential but are likely to remain relatively small are firstly the direct export of electricity uh, through an underwater cable. So people are talking about that. There's a group that some of our listeners might have heard of called Sun Cable that are looking at selling power from the Northern Territory all the way to Singapore. Now, the prospects for this are sort of uncertain. It's never really been done at that scale and over that distance. So we, it may well happen. We're certainly not ruling it out, but, but it's not what we've based our report around. Equally, there's been a lot of talk about hydrogen exports, where hydrogen is made out of renewable energy using a machine known as an electrolyzer. The hydrogen is put on a ship and then it is used as a fuel in, the, say, um, the the countries of Asia that currently consume, say, our coal. Now, there was a national hydrogen strategy last year, and, and, and certainly there's a lot of um, support and momentum behind this concept. Again, we certainly aren't ruling it out, but the, the fact remains that the global hydrogen market just doesn't exist today. And so we just, um, we're not confident that we could base a, a clean energy story purely around that pathway. So the one that we focused on most is really quite similar to what we do today in a lot of ways. It's about making energy intensive commodities here in Australia using our abundant renewable energy and selling that commodity. So the energy is actually exported, embodied in the, in the form of, of an energy intensive commodity. And the three that we've focused most on um, is green steel, uh, a biofuel made out of biomass that's sustainably produced, or ammonia that's also made out of uh, 
hydrogen derived from solar and wind power that we have here in Australia. All right, Guy, I can feel another uh, definition coming on here. What is green steel? So green steel is, is, is the commodity that we're focused most on in this report. And today we make steel using coal. So the coal is used as what's called a reductant and it strips the oxygen out of the iron ore and leaves you with iron metal that you can then turn into steel. But unfortunately in doing so, it produces carbon dioxide, which as other people know is a greenhouse gas. You can also make steel using hydrogen, where the hydrogen performs the function that the coal does today, strips the oxygen out of the iron ore, but the byproduct is water, which of course is, is not a problem. So the trick is making hydrogen cost effectively uh, and without producing any emissions in the production of the hydrogen. As I mentioned before, you can use solar and wind power using a machine called an electrolyzer to, to strip the hydrogen out of water and then use that to make the steel. So in our definition, that is the, the obvious pathway to make low emissions green steel here in Australia using our abundant solar and wind. And the good news, Guy, as you allude to, isn't it, is that green steel in Australia could employ many thousands of people in the regions where carbon workers live and work right now. Absolutely. So let's firstly think about how the world makes steel today. So it makes it using iron ore and coal. And Australia has uh, the coal that's used to make steel and iron ore in abundance. But what we do today is we ship it to places like China, India, Japan, and Korea, and they combine the, the iron ore and the coal to make steel where they have lots of labor and they're, and they're very close to market. That's, that's how the economics makes it today. The future that we're looking at would be quite different. And the difference is that it's, it's quite cheap to ship coal. It's not cheap to ship hydrogen. So if you're going to make green steel, it makes sense to do that here in Australia, where the hydrogen is cheap and abundant, not to stick the hydrogen on a ship and, and, and take it to, to, if you like, where the, where the labour is cheaper and more abundant in Asia and, and where the market is. It, it turns the economics on its head. Now, it flows from that, that we have a decisive energy cost advantage. We are a high-wage country, so we do need to overcome that wage cost. But we think the economics clearly stack up to doing this activity at scale in Australia, and it means that we need to have those tens of thousands of workers uh, to make the steel here in Australia that we don't currently employ doing that today because the economics don't make sense. But you're talking about transporting the iron ore nonetheless across the continent from the Pilbara to the East Coast. Surely that's bad news for the Pilbara and for WA. Well, the Pilbara ships the iron ore to Asia now. So in a sense, it's, it's very much the same story as, as what, what they have today. I, I think perhaps the, one of the most interesting things we found on our journey was that, that I mean, I, I guess if you talk about making green steel in Australia, some people's minds would go, well, We've got the world's largest iron ore resource there in the northwest of Australia in the Pilbara. Obviously, you do it there. And, and in some ways, that makes sense. In some ways, that's quite intuitive. But we looked at the economics and we found that it's not. It actually makes sense to do it where you have that large labour force. Uh, labour is a lot more affordable on the east coast of Australia than it is in the Pilbara. More people live there and you don't need to pay them a lot to move to the Pilbara to do that work. And it follows from that that building the stuff you need to, to make steel and also operating that machinery is more affordable. And that's even once uh, you've accounted for the cost of transporting the iron ore. So to us, it's about having, if you like, the sweet spot. You've got to have the energy and you've got to have the workers. 
the east coast of Australia ticks both of those boxes in a way that neither the Pilbara nor Asia quite do in, in different ways. And so we're particularly excited about that for those carbon regions of, of Australia, such as central Queensland and the Hunter Valley. You also write about biofuels potentially providing job opportunities in other regions, Guy. First of all, what's a biofuel and what are these opportunities, Guy? So biofuels are made out of biomass and, and really that can be many sources of biomass and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, but it's a fuel made out of biomass. Obviously, when something grows, it's pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So if you burn that, the idea is that it could be carbon neutral. Now, the history of biofuels, I'll be quite honest, has been quite troubled and quite problematic. So something that we did, well, it started really happening at scale a bit over a decade ago was using food crops to make biofuels. And clearly that has problems. Uh, it means you've got a kind of food versus fuel debate. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking, what, uh, talking about what some people call sustainable or second generation biofuels that are made out of non-food sources and that minimise that competition between food and fuel. So I really want to be clear about that. We're talking about biomass that um, might be the waste byproduct of, say, a forestry industry or a waste byproduct from an agricultural industry. It could even be municipal solid waste, otherwise known as household garbage. And under certain circumstances, it could be a non-food crop grown on marginal agricultural land specifically to, to um, make biomass. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Now, we're particularly interested in biofuel um, as a potential aviation fuel. And the reason is that the world looks like it's going to move pretty decisively towards electric vehicles. So we don't think that it's going to make sense at scale to use biofuels in, in the, the sedan sitting in your garage. Um, there just wouldn't be enough biofuel in the world and there's a cheaper, more sensible way to do it and that is almost certainly electricity. But uh, as everyone would know, an aeroplane burns a fair bit of fuel and um, it's very hard to run it on battery. In fact, it's basically impossible to run a commercial jetliner on batteries with really anything like today's technology. So it's much more likely that we'll need a liquid fuel, but we need to decarbonise that liquid fuel. So we see opportunities in biofuel, um, but particularly around aviation. Now, just quickly bringing that back to Australia, um, we've looked at a CSIRO study of where waste biomass, the, the sources that I mentioned before, are available in Australia. And there are concentrations in areas that today have fossil fuel-based industries or energy-intensive industries um, so particularly, we, we notice clusters of biomass around the Collie in southwest WA, which is currently a coal mining and power generation town, um, around Portland in southwest Victoria, which is today home to an aluminium smelter and may well continue to be, but it also has a lot of biomass from its forestry industries and potentially could develop a new industry. And also in the Latrobe Valley, which is also a, a coal and power generation uh, region, there's quite a bit of biomass around there. So. Again, we see those opportunities of both the fundamental resource and the workers really lining up. You also identify green ammonia as a potential opportunity? So ammonia is a, is a chemical commodity. It's made basically out of nitrogen and hydrogen. Now, the nitrogen is relatively easy to get your hands out of. The air is 78% nitrogen. Um, the hydrogen is a little bit harder, and that's where we have that story about low-cost solar and wind in Australia 
running a machine called an electrolyzer to produce renewable hydrogen with zero emissions. So the technology of ammonia is, is quite clear and there's potentially a very exciting economic opportunity for Australia um, producing uh, renewable ammonia as well. That opportunity could even grow further if, as some people think, ammonia could be used as a shipping fuel instead of fossil fuel. So there's potentially quite a large opportunity there as well. Okay, so Tony, can I bring you back here? What needs to happen for Australia to grasp these opportunities that guys just run through? I guess the first thing needs to happen is um, we've actually got to look at this opportunity as something other than pipe dreaming. After the Second World War, Australia had quite a significant manufacturing industry. But over time, we lost a lot of that manufacturing to other countries that had better capability of manufacturing stuff. And we got really good at digging up stuff out of the ground and sending it somewhere else. And guys already referred to doing that with coal and iron ore. We are the world's leaders doing that very cheaply. But what that meant, of course, was we saw the demise of manufacturing. And many people said, oh my goodness, shouldn't we bring it back? Isn't COVID-19 a great example of why we should reinvent manufacturing in this country? I think the reality is that um, we need to be very strategic as to how we think about that. And so this particular piece of insight that we think we provided in this report Paul, says, look, this is an economic opportunity for Australia. This is an economic opportunity to, in fact, have a renaissance of manufacturing in this country, but it's based upon hard-nosed economics and comparative advantage. We will have an advantage, as Guy said, not only in digging the resource out of the ground, but also or based upon our renewable energy and converting that iron ore into iron, wherever that iron ore comes from. And so from that perspective, this looks like a serious opportunity, not tomorrow, not the week after, but a little bit further down the track. To make it happen, we need to grasp that opportunity as it emerges. It will emerge as the world turns towards green commodities, including green steel. We're already seeing the beginnings of that, but it hasn't yet become a serious tidal wave of demand. It will become so over time. We need to be ready and build our capability when that comes. Now, inevitably, the investment that will be necessary will not come from governments. It will come from investors in the private sector. So what should governments be doing? Governments should be helping prepare for that. The way governments could help prepare for that would be, for example, to begin to create that capability in Australia would be to um, support fund by contributing some financial support to a what's called a flagship program a project in which we would put out there or the government would put out there for organizations to propose projects which would begin this journey towards um, green steel or even greener steel using the sort of process guy talked about that would be the first step it would be significant it might also help some of our existing domestic focused steel manufacturers begin their own journey in that direction. The second thing we need to be thinking about from a government perspective is that one of the major issues about hydrogen, in addition to producing it from renewable energy using electrolyzers, is we need to be able to store that hydrogen for when we need it um, to make the steel, to make the iron, the iron ore. Storing hydrogen is tricky. It's a bit of a uh, tricky little molecule. Um, and so what that means is we need to think about how we can store it cheaply in relatively large volumes. Australia has done, not done much of that. Underground geological storage of hydrogen would probably be the best way to do that. And we need to understand where in Australia we'd have the best opportunities. Governments are very good at providing 
an early stage assessment of the capacity for Australia to capture that. And third, and equally importantly, state and local governments have very important roles in approvals, in planning, and those sorts of things, and, and supporting local workforces in making this sort of transition. Um, we've talked about the Hunter region. The Newcastle region did a fantastic job of, of, of dealing with the closure of the BHP back in the late 1990s. It would be an interesting, in some way, wonderful turnabout if Newcastle was once again to become the basis of resource-based manufacturing. So I think there are roles for federal, state, and for local government, and also from industry. And we've set out some ideas of how this can happen. It won't happen today, it will happen over time. We can go faster or slower, as Guy has said, depending upon what happens in the broader world. But there's things we can do today to ensure that Australia is well positioned to take advantage of that opportunity when it comes knocking. Tony, I want you to sum up for me and I want you to do it this way. I want you to look into that crystal ball of yours. Let's say we're able to pull this off and that we do create a big new export industry. How will Australia be different in, let's say, the year 2050, if that happens? And in particular, how will regional Australia be different? Paul, firstly, I should say that most of the time I've tried to work with crystal balls, I break them on the floor. So um, <laughs> we do know that anyone, Grattan's very careful about making forecasts. So there's a vision here of what Australia could look like. And I think what we're trying to suggest is that if we understand that vision and don't treat it as a dream, this is something we could do if we turn our minds to it. What might it look like? Well, in some cases, it will look like what we do now, but better. So we would have regional jobs in areas where our low-cost renewables, which in the future will be a significant comparative advantage. And remember, because of the nature of our continent, the amount of renewable energy we can produce relative to our own demand is huge. Other countries that might have significant amounts of renewable energy, such as the United States, they will absorb most of that within their own domestic economy. So we have got a huge resource for which we can make exportable commodities. So we think that steel is by some margin the most attractive of those and turning our iron ore or iron ore from anywhere into um, iron and then to steel is a fantastic opportunity we could grasp. But at the same time, we also could be a major source of things like ammonia. We may also eventually crack the nut of how do we make green aluminium? There is no doubt that these areas, aluminium, steel, concrete, ammonia, are all difficult to decarbonize areas today. They won't be in the future. And I think Australia is well positioned, not just to take, capture the economic benefit as an exporter of commodities, but to actually turn those raw commodities into something that has real value and provides many tens of thousands of jobs. In areas today we have jobs, but also in some areas where we don't. Thanks, Tony, and thank you, Guy, for your expertise and for the vision you've outlined in this important report. And thank you to you, our listeners and viewers. If you would like to read the Start With Steel report, or indeed any of Tony and Guy's reports and articles, then head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, including our previous podcasts and webinars on the COVID-19 crisis and a whole lot more besides. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. 
And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening and watching. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate.